Keep the passage open. Uh, Luke 22, we're going to make our way through that passage. Let me pray before we head into it. Father, we ask that you give us a fresh sense um, of your compassion and your mercy that flows to anyone who turns to you. Amen. So I must confess, uh, during the week, I, I succumbed to some clickbait. This title um, was 10 Monumental Screw-Ups That Will Make You Feel Like an Absolute Champ. That was the title. Could you chuck me there? Okay, the first one was, number one, in the days when the internet began, so the, you know, the good old days, uh, Yahoo had an opportunity to buy Google. They were offered uh, Google. Um, they were offered to buy Google for one million dollars, and you might know that Google is now worth over four hundred billion dollars. Stuff up number one. Uh, number four was in 1958. Um, Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong. Nice. Um, a former Chinese leader. He um, he thought that the sparrows were eating all their crops, the country's crops, and so he ordered a mass killing of sparrows. Um, but it wasn't the sparrows on the crops uh, eating the crops. It was the insects on the crops, and the sparrows were eating the insects. And so when all the sparrows went, the insects just increased. And so as a result of that decision to kill the sparrows, one of the worst starvations in history happened. Uh, uh, number seven in this, in this article, um, a grad student... Um, in, in 1964, made a drastic error when he cut down a bristlecone pine tree in eastern Nevada. He didn't know this, but this pine tree was the oldest living thing on earth. Oof. <laughs> Stuff-ups, mistakes, bad decisions, they're a tragic part of life. We see them in the news. We see TV series based after them, um, Breaking Bad, House of Cards. Uh, we, we, uh, we know that Shakespeare made a living from tragedies. Um, we hear about tragedies in the lives of people we know. We stuff up. And so the question tonight is, what do we do when we completely stuff up? What do we do when we do something we thought we'd never do what do we do when we cross a line we just, we just never thought we'd cross? That's the question we're thinking about tonight. So in the lead up to Easter, we've been uh, making our way through Luke's Gospel. And two weeks ago, we ended in the dead of night. It was, it was silent and we were in a garden. It was a moment of profound tension. If, if it was a movie, you'd be glued to the screen, but there's no action happening on the screen. Except for Jesus, who knew what was ahead. He was sweating blood. And then he breaks the silence two weeks ago with this. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But now that the, the pace of the gospel is picking up, the storm is developing around Jesus. And just as Jesus was the only one two weeks ago who, who prayed to God, who had the stamina to pray to God, Jesus will be the only one left standing after tonight, that this night and the gospel is through. Judas, the disciples, the chief priests, Peter, they're all going to completely stuff up. 
And so we're going to start with Judas. Uh, Verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas has become pretty good at keeping his secret life a secret. Now, in John chapter 12, uh, Mary um, pours out on Jesus' feet really expensive perfume. And in response to to Mary pouring that out on her feet, Judas said, sort of with a self-righteous tone, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. And then the narrator goes on in uh, John's gospel. Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Judas's secret life, being a thief, was different to his public persona. And so two weeks ago when Jesus was at the table with his disciples and he said someone would betray him, no one thought it would be Judas. No one realised what he was doing. And to the very end, Judas masks his corruption with the sign of affection, a kiss. Now, to keep your secret life as separate from your public life, to have a gap between those two things, it's really dangerous. Uh, A gap like that will raise its ugly head at some point in a terrible way as it did for Judas. So to give the impression that you're going really well as a Christian, but sort of in the background, you, um, you, you never pray. You, you're, you're, you're sort of caught in sin. You're doing something that's not pleasing Jesus. You're, you're um, swearing, you're talking gossip. To have that gap is very dangerous. Whatever it might be, we need to be really careful that our public life and our secret life aren't way off. And this is one reason why we make it a regular habit of us at at St. Mark's to have a confession in our church service. It's a tiny moment in the service. It's really just a a gesture. I mean, it's really important that we do confess our sins to God, and that's what we do in those moments. But it's a a habit of us, us to get used to putting on the table before God our true feelings, thoughts, and attitudes and behaviors and asking for forgiveness. It's a habit of putting our secret life on the table before God so that it's known to him. And sometimes we don't do this very much at St. Mark's, but I think we should do it more because it's a part of being a Christian community. Sometimes we tell other people about those things. People we care about, people who we know care about us, um, friends who we feel comfortable talking about with these type of things. It's important that we share the secret life with other people. They can help us, encourage us. But Judas never did that. And Jesus saw straight through the kiss, of course. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? So Judas does something I think he'd never imagined doing. But now the disciples stuff up. So verse 49. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, that Jesus was about to be arrested, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. 
Now, the background to this somewhat sort of farcical scene is a passage we read two weeks ago uh, in chapter 22, verses 35 to 38. So look at it in your, in your Bibles. Jesus had a somewhat cryptic conversation with his disciples. Uh, so Jesus said to his disciples, I asked his disciples, when I sent you without per- sorry, when I send when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Now, Jesus was speaking sort of cryptically. He wasn't literally telling them to arm themselves. He was preparing them for what was around the corner. See, the disciples so far in Jesus' ministry, they were on the whole welcomed into people's homes and provided for. That's why they didn't have to have a purse. But Jesus was saying, that's all about to change. Jesus is about to be arrested as a criminal. He's going to be numbered amongst the transgressors, the the criminals. And so they're going to be treated as criminals to the disciples. And so instead of being welcomed, they're going to face opposition. But when the disciples heard about the swords, they liked the idea of having a sword. And so verse 38, the disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, Jesus replied. And so when uh, the disciple in, in this passage used his sword to strike the servant's ear off, it's clear that the disciples didn't get the point back in, in the previous passage. So fed up with the disciples, Jesus said again, sort of, no more of this, that's enough. And he touched the man's ear and he healed him. Now, this is a revealing moment for, um, for, for Jesus. I mean, not, I mean we've, we've known Jesus as one who, who loves his enemies. But here we see it in action. He's faced with opposition. Jesus is faced with opposition. How did he respond? So the natural human tendency uh, in the face of opposition is to fight fire with fire, whether it's physical opposition or not, whether it's verbal attack, whether it's gossip, sneering remark, whatever it is, we tend to react fire with fire. And that's exactly what the disciple did. But Jesus has an entirely different approach. Faced with opposition, Jesus touches the man's ear and he heals it. This man was about to arrest Jesus. This, was, this man wanted Jesus put to death. Well, he was a part of the group that wanted that. And instead of responding in violence, Jesus touches his ear and heals him. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of his disciples. Uh, written about 30 years after this moment... Peter, who was actually the guy who struck the, um, the, the, servants, the, the chief priest's servant's ear off, um, he wrote these words about 30 years later. I wonder if he thought of the moment that we've just talked about. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will bless you for it. So Judas stuffs up. The disciples make quite literally a bloody mess. And now it's the chief priests and elders who are put in the spotlight. So verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers and the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs 
Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Now, there's a moment in the movie The Dark Knight Rises when all hope for Gotham City is lost. Gotham City's protector, the Dark Knight, he finds himself in the pit. And, and the enemy on the bottom right there, Bane is standing over him. On, on Batman's left, there's a TV where, where Bane's told him he can watch the destruction of Gotham City. And um, atop of, of Batman is the tunnel leading to the sky. And Bane explains that that's a symbol of hope. Hope that is unreachable. He'll never be able to escape through the tunnel. And so Bane finishes this, this sort of uh, spiel that he has to Batman with these words. We will destroy Gotham and then when it's done and, and Gotham is ashes, then you will have my permission to die. Now in, in the movie, this is a hopeless moment. The, the tragedy is that Batman is totally out of control and it seems that Gotham City has no hope. Darkness has, has descended on Gotham City. And the question is, is this the way it is for Jesus at the moment? He's surrounded by the, the, the religious high priests. He says darkness has come. Is this a moment of hopelessness for Jesus? The moment with Jesus is actually very different to this moment in the movie. Jesus was not helpless in the gospel account. He was, he was ready for what was about to happen. He, he'd he'd um, told his disciples that this would happen for, for chapters now. Three times, in fact, he, he told his disciples that he would be arrested, beaten and, and killed. Jesus was ready for this moment. And it was actually the, the, the chief priests who were surrounding him who were doing the thing that would lead to Jesus achieving the redemption of all people. He wasn't out of control like Batman was in this moment in the gospel. He was in control. So finally, we come to Peter. So before we pick it up at verse 54, we need to do a bit of a series recap, sort of like the, the Netflix series recap you sort of skip every time. Um, this one's going to be focused on Peter. So Peter, he was sharp. He was the first person to get Jesus' identity right. What do you say, Peter? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are God's Messiah. Nail on the head. And he was bold. Right after Jesus had said that he'd be arrested, this is a while back in the gospel, that he'd be arrested and that he'd die, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this won't happen to you. He was bold. And he swore loyalty. So previous in this chapter, after Jesus said to Peter that he'd stumble, Peter responded, verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. So Peter was a bold disciple. My guess is the disciple who started the argument a while ago, two weeks ago, about who was the greatest. Verse 54. Then seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. 
I mean, notice that he's the only one brave enough to follow it all. Uh, and when some uh, there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, replied Peter. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. That's three times Jesus denied knowing Jesus. That's, that's emphatic. That is total denial on Peter's part. The thing he never, he said he'd never do, the, the thing he never dreamt of doing, he's done. And so just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord looked straight at Peter. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Can you imagine that moment when Jesus' eyes locked with Peter's? Can you imagine what that would have been like? I'm sure Jesus' eyes weren't ones of condemnation, but, but compassion. But it was a moment of stultifying truth. What Jesus had predicted had come true. Jesus knew Peter better than he knew himself. And Peter had stuffed up. He'd done what he'd never Imagine doing the bold one, the one you'd expect never to betray Jesus, had been broken. He went outside and wept bitterly. Now, I'm not sure if you've picked up this quality of, of chapter 22, but it's sort of like a Stephen Bradbury moment. Uh, everyone's fallen in this, in, in this chapter in big ways. Judas, the disciples, the high priest... Peter, the proudest disciple, everyone falls but Jesus. And he's still standing. He's the only one who prayed a little while ago. And he's the only one to go through with doing the Father's will. And I think the fact that he's the only one standing at this point in time is, is sort of the point of this, this part of the, the gospel. He's the only one who could truly be obedient to the will of the Father. And so the question I asked at the beginning of the sermon, what do we do when we completely stuff up? What do we do when we do something we never thought we'd do? Like we've, we've totally put our foot in it. Like what do you do in that situation? How we respond is crucial. So when Peter looked up at Jesus and their eyes connected, he broke down. When we stuff up, surely the first response, the first response, the healthy response is some type of sorrow. We've, we've betrayed God. We've hurt other people. Sorrow is, is definitely the first step when we've, when we've totally stuffed up. There's a verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that says this, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. We'll return to this, but I want to tell one of my favourite stories in the Gospel first. So it's the end of John's Gospel. 
after Peter had denied Jesus and after Jesus had, had died. And the disciples were together. And they were pretty low. Their, their spirits were pretty low. Their leader had, had been killed. And Peter says to the other disciples, I'm going out to fish. They were fishermen after all. And so they went out to fish and they fished all night and didn't catch a thing. And the, the morning sun came up and they saw on the shore this, this man. They couldn't really see him very well. He was quite far away. And, um, and this, this man calls out, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. This man said, throw your net on the right side of the boat. There you'll find some. And when they did that, they hauled in a net of fish, a catch of fish, that they could hardly fit in the boat. And then John said to Peter, it's the Lord. And so who was the sort of bold, initiative-taking disciple who jumped into the water to run to Jesus? Of course, it was Peter. And so after spending some time on the shore together, they had a barbecue on the shore. It's just a beautiful moment in the gospel. Jesus somewhat abruptly asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Peter, uh, Jesus asked Peter two more times that same question, Peter, do you love me? And he responded the same way. This is a really powerful moment. This is Jesus wanting to show Peter that all is forgiven. It's Jesus reinstating Peter as one of his followers. It's grace. The key to sorrow when we stuff up is that we don't lose sight of the one who stands at the end of this chapter, the only one who stands. That we see Jesus. And just like Peter did, run to him or come to Jesus. Peter's story could have ended in tragedy. It could have. It could have led him down a hole of hopelessness, like it did for Judas. If you know Judas's story, that's exactly what happened to him. But Peter's betrayal wasn't the end of his story. His sorrow led to repentance, which meant running to Jesus, his only hope. And so totally forgiven by Jesus... And reinstated by him, Peter's story ended up being a witness to the transforming power of God's grace. If you read on in in Acts, you'll see a Peter who uses his boldness to declare the gospel. By God's spirit, Peter becomes a restored man after his own heart. That's how God works. Let's pray. Father, we pray when we do something that we totally regret doing, when we really put our foot in it, when we feel like we're in a pit for what we have done, we ask that you give us the power to look to your Son, to see your mercy and your grace, your compassion, and return to Jesus. Amen.